Hurricane season is never much fun from the bridge, but it is what it is. So we're going to steer the boat into a protective cove today for today's podcast. Rick Jones here with another terrific show today. A protective cove is the perfect place to talk about culture because a successful culture depends on keeping your people safe, sound, and secure. Uh, We recorded this a few weeks before we actually broadcast, and we have a major tropical storm heading our way this this day, I am uh, I'm reminded of the old Bob Dylan song, uh, Come In, She Said, I'll Give You Shelter From The Storm. Um, I think that's what culture's about. Culture's about uh, helping your people stay um, engaged in tough, tough times. And clearly, not only have we had this uh, tropical storm, we're in the middle of this coronavirus storm, and it's been, uh, it's been an interesting time, to say the least. Um, my very special guest angler today is my dear friend, Mike Reichman, who's one of the legends in sports and entertainment marketing and a guy who gets rave reviews from all who've worked with him for building great cultures at his agencies. We'll stand again naked as a jaybird up on the old soapbox, and we'll find another terrific place to eat on the road with Rick. So sit in the back of the boat for another edition of From the Bridge. The late Peter Drucker once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. (laughs) Well, what exactly is culture? We went back to Mr. Webster, and the old Webster Dictionary says, culture is the act of developing the intellectual and moral faculties of organizations. It also says it includes expert care and training. My partner at Engagement, David Malay, defines culture as, quote, the way we do things around here. (laughs) I like that. It's the commonly acceptable behaviors of everyone in the organization. For me, culture starts with the values of the organization, not your purpose, but your values, your principles. Your business Purpose might be to provide a specific product or service to customers, but how you do this are your values. I've often talked on this show about John Maxwell, and John Maxwell told a great story that uh, during the height of the Enron situation, when it seemed like uh, every business in America was corrupt, uh, his publisher came to him and said, John, you, you need to write a book on business ethics. He said he thought about it, he came back and said, no, I'm not going to do that. See, I don't believe they're business ethics. I think they're just ethics. (laughs) I call ethics the non-negotiables. You know, one of mine is that we don't cheat on our taxes. I mean, we we never cheat. Um, You know, we should be proud to pay our taxes. But I'm going to tell you this, those that cheat on their taxes hurt the rest of us who don't. You know, one of the values at Fishbait is that we put our people ahead of profits. Um, Years ago, I actually fired a client. We had a very good client. um, But his people were abusive to our team. I mean, he had some people that just treated our our staff like dogs. Um, So I, I took him to lunch, and I told him that I appreciated the business. 
but that we weren't going to be working with him anymore. And uh, he paused and said, in all my years of business, I've never been talked to by a vendor like this. And I smiled and said, you know, that's the problem. I thought we were your partner and not your vendor. You know, this pandemic has revealed everybody's values. We have very, very few revenues right now. But we made the decision we were going to put our people ahead of profits, ahead of revenues. Um, you know, I was reminded of a story my dad told me years ago. I don't know. We were out someplace and talking about money. And he said, you know how much money John D. Rockefeller left behind when he died? I said, no, Dad, how much was it? And he said, all of it. Um, it made me realize money is a tool for helping people. It's not something you can keep. You can't put it in your coffin. I've been to a lot of funerals, never been to one that the hearse was followed by a Brinks truck. Um, and so we, we made the decision to do that. We, we, no furloughs. We've had to cut salaries, but we continue to pay health insurance. Um, my feeling about leadership, and we talked about leadership with Carl Thomas recently. The leader has to lead with the values. Values have to be lived by the leader for credibility. We've got another rule. And I really got this rule from Bobby Bowden, Coach Bobby Bowden. Here's the rule. Everyone gets a second chance. No one gets a third chance. But everyone gets a second chance because we're just human. He, he, he would often talk about the fact that he would give a player a second chance. And, and some fan would inevitably say to him, Coach, how could you give that guy a second chance? And he said, I always told him the same thing. What if he were your son? That changes things, doesn't it? Well, if you're going to build culture, everybody that works with you are your sons and your daughters and your brothers and your sisters. Values are the foundation of culture. I know this. If you can't articulate your company's values, then you probably don't have any. And that's a shame for you'll never build a culture to succeed at the highest level. One of my oldest and dearest friends in the business of sponsorship is Mike Reichman. Mike is one of those guys I admire most because of both his talents and his integrity. He has simply done it all in an amazing career and is here today to tell us, firstly, all about his professional journey, and secondly, the secrets to building a great organizational culture, because he knows how to build outstanding culture. I'm absolutely honored to welcome my pal, Mike Reichman, to the bridge. Hey, Mike, I'm delighted to have you on the show today. Well, Rick, it's great to be here, and um, I am honored to be speaking to one of the real legends of our, uh, of our industry. Well, that's the way I introduced you, too, so it's a very <laughs> much a mutual feeling. You know, of all the guests that I've had, we go back the furthest. I mean, we we we, we go back when I had hair. Uh, yes. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a long, 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 long way back. I think it spans four decades, Rick. Uh, 
back in the days of the Nabisco championships and you were the master marketing mind behind that event in uh, San Antonio. What, what a lot of people don't realize is the Nabisco championships way back then was the uh, forerunner of the, um, of the tour championship where we had, you know, 30 golfers playing for at that point, you know, it was an outrageous sum, a million dollar first prize. Um, and that eventually turned into the tour championship. You know, that uh, tournament at Oak Hills Country Club and Oak Hills is a, is a telling has design course. Um, and it had a par three finishing hole, which, you know, n- no courses have par three finishing holes. And, uh, Tom Watson won that tournament. That was the last regular tour event that he won. And he, he was beginning to get the yips a little bit, you know, on his putting. I mean, he could still hit it pretty darn straight, but you worried about putting. And, and, and Greg Norman made a run late and cut it to one. He was in the clubhouse one stroke ahead. And I remember Watson being on the 18th tee box, and he needed a par, you know, to, um, to win the tournament. And, um, you know, of course, he, he, he didn't putt so well, so people thought, hey, this, this might get interesting. And he hit his drive three inches from the cup and, and, bur- and birdied and won that thing. So I, I'll never forget that. That was a cool finishing hole, uh, kind of like a bowl that everybody could sit in and you could watch the tee box and all that. So it was, uh, it was really neat. And, and you're right, it became the – the tour championship and um but it was kind of a I, I think way ahead of its time in terms of uh creating a season ending you know kind of event in the golf business yeah well there was a lot of things first of all we were very young men that was you know pre-wives pre-family um and uh pre uh receding hairline as you mentioned but um you know we did do a lot of things you know one of those things i um I remember the most was really off the golf course was, you know, at a time when um, there were very, you know, few sponsors really selling their product uh, endemically through their retail channels. Um, you know, we, we created a, a charity program that was tied into the retail, I think at the time, KT, but uh, where we brought the, the Bisco championships into the grocery aisles with, um, trade programs and retail signage and um, a charity component. And it was something that, you know, together we leveraged throughout the tour. Um, at that point, um, the uh, head of marketing at Nabisco said, if we're going to spend all this money in sports, uh, I want to see how it's going to sell product. Because somewhat notoriously, the CEO, Ross Johnson at the time, really used um sports to create what he called Team Nabisco. He had this whole array of athletes that he used to entertain the trade. I mean, it was an incredible collection. Jack Nicholas, Nancy Lopez, Bobby Orr, Reggie Jackson, O.J. Simpson, Don Mattingly. He had all these guys on retainer to entertain the trade. Well, his head of sales and marketing, a wonderful man named Ed Redding, said, you know, if we're going to spend all this money sponsoring tennis, sponsoring golf, sponsoring these athletes, how are we going to sell it through retail? And you and I worked on a program that eventually became um, the Nabisco Charity Challenge tied to Nabisco's title sponsorship of the PGA Tour. And we were getting display on grocery retail stores throughout the country 
and the velocity of sales increased. And, you know, it was really one of the first programs out there um, where we were taking, you know, sponsorship intellectual property at retail, and it was uh, pretty progressive at the time. You know, it, it, it led to a number of grocery chains ending up being title sponsors, Kroger in Cincinnati and Ralph's in L.A. and Rayleigh's in Sacramento and Bruno's in Birmingham. But but the, the program that, you know, we collectively did with, with H.E. Butt um, kind of saved the Texas Open because once Nabisco left and, and took um, the championships to Pebble Beach the following year, then H.E.B. stepped in as the title sponsor of what had been the the Texas Open. And, and so, you know, it was really kind of teaching, um, number one, CPG companies that you could leverage things at retail, but it also showed retailers, hey, we can do this too. And, and I think it was the, the really led to the vendor programs that later, you know, Home Depot did their Olympic program and other people did a tie to vendor money. So I think it was very pioneering. You know, before your time, at Omar, though, let's go back a little bit. I know you went to St. Lawrence and, and you played soccer. Where did where did you did you did you always know you wanted to work in marketing? What was kind of your fork in the road that led you into you know into working in this crazy business? Well, you know, the thing that I think really I learned at an early age was my dad, uh, who you know, thank God, is still alive, ninety one and a half. Um, it, you know, he told me early on to, uh, and it's probably the, the, the greatest lesson he ever taught me, is to work in an area that I'm passionate about and where I'm going to, you know, love going to work every day. Um, and, you know, try to blend your passion with what you're good at. So, you know, I, I, I was never much of a numbers guy. A lot of my friends when I graduated went into the you know, stock market and hedge funds and made tons of money. I was going to be good at marketing and I love sports. And um, I uh, got an opportunity to work at, at the LPGA, Ladies Professional Golf Association. And so, you know, that's where that's where I got started. And, you know, I, I, I got my start making $10,000 a year. 12,000 in my second year, 14,000 in my third year. So clearly I wasn't in it for the money, but I was in it for the experience and just, you know, kind of loved what I was doing. And so, um, Hey, I want, really I want all the young people that are out there listening <clears throat> to understand this in order to start, you start at the bottom <laughs> and you start making a salary that it, it, for young people right now may you may be rolling your eyes, but that's what you have to do. Um, and, and so, and, and, and you know what, and you probably did okay on $10,000 a year. Uh, well, you you made it work. You, I can tell you it's a lot of funny stories about how we made it work. Maybe that's for a different type of podcast, but it was, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't, it, it never felt like something I had to do, Rick, because, you know, here I was traveling around the world with 150 golfers with, you know, uh, a number of other young people, the rules officials, the PR folks, the marketing folks, the front office folks, you know, we were young, we were, we, we had a blast. And, you know, the thing about it is to this day, those people I traveled around with are people that are part of my professional network. And, you know, that did lead me into a job a few years later and, and look at us. I mean, one thing I have to say, Rick, is when, when, you know, you don't talk about yourself on these podcasts 
very often, at least the ones I've listened to, um, you know, you were the mastermind of this kind of retail approach to activating golf. I, I learned some of that from you. I, I carried that through into a broader program. Uh, but you're, you know, maybe the most creative guy and innovative guy in our business. And, you know, here it is some um, 35 years later. Uh, and we're still, you know, very close friends and, you know, can still relish our professional accomplishments together. Um, and so those days were important to me. And, and as my dad said, if you love what you're doing, all the other stuff will take care of itself. Career advancement, you know, financial rewards um, and fulfillment. And, you know, he was right. Well, did you leave the LPJ and then go work for Don Omar? Well, I took a time out from my only 18 months out of sports marketing. I went to work for IBM for 18 months. Uh, I worked in their personal computer division down in Boca Raton, Florida. It was a, kind of the maverick of IBM at the time, going up against Apple. Um, if you've ever watched the movie Steve Jobs, they talked about IBM's prowess in the personal computer market uh, back at that time. But I knew almost within a week that it wasn't for me. Big, bureaucratic. I remember walking down the hallways um, and uh, the offices that didn't have windows, and they're just, you know, guys sitting at their desk, feet up, reading magazines and newspapers, waiting their time to get a opportunity to impact the business. And I knew that wasn't for me. I just couldn't have that kind of tunnel vision. So I toughed it out, if you will, for 18 months, and then I went to work for Olmeyer, where my rabbi, a guy named Chip Campbell, uh, hired me uh, for a second time. Um, and he likes to say he was the only one dumb enough to hire me twice. But uh, <laughs> I, I owe a lot to him. And then I got you know back into the entrepreneurial world and sports marketing and haven't looked back since. You know, it's interesting that you you had an experience that you said, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to talk a lot about culture today. You know, I think you've been the master at culture. And I think you may have looked at the IBM culture and said, Mm-mm, this is this is not what I want to be spending my life doing. You, you, you know, it's it's it, it, I, I learned so much from that. And, and I tell a lot of young people you know, try different things, move to different parts of the country or the world, you know, don't just stay where you, you're comfortable. Um, try different kinds of companies if you're, if you have a question, because, you know, IBM is right for hundreds of thousands of people. It wasn't right for me. Um, and so, you know, while, uh, you know, I think the thing I'm most proud of in my industry, in my, in my career is the culture, you know, that, uh, I, along with, you know, some others have been able to create. Um, it's always important the other way around. It's for the person looking for the job to really understand the culture, the dynamics, the environment that they're getting into to make sure it suits what they, is going to be best for them, suit the, the environment that's going to suit them and allow them to thrive. Um, and the only way you learn that is trying a few different things along the way. A lot of people that are listening maybe don't remember Olmeyer Communications and Don Olmeyer, but you worked in what was the most innovative shop of its time. I mean, but I mean, again, a lot of it was the uniqueness of Team Nabisco and all of the stuff. I think there was some cycling. There was obviously the tennis stuff, and of course the golf stuff. But 
but Don had, you know, he'd been a television producer. And so he, he understood the intersection of sports marketing and television, you know, maybe better than anybody. Uh, hadn't he, yeah. didn't he work for maybe Rune Arledge and yeah. Yeah. So he, he was yeah. part of that. Uh, he was part of the, uh, the family tree that Rune Arledge created at ABC sports. He was the first ever producer of Monday night football in 1974, I believe, um, two years out of Notre Dame as a 24-year-old, which tells you two things. He was brilliant, but also Monday Night Football wasn't as big a deal back then as, as, it, as it came to be you know, later on. Um, but he not only was a master of the intersection of sports and, um, and television, but also entertainment. I mean, that was really, you know, he had done sports, but um, – Omar Communications was, you know, for those people that really know how IMG grew, it was kind of like a mini IMG at the time. Uh, Omar had a modeling division. Uh, one of the big success stories is Omar was the first producer of the MTV Awards. I remember, um, again, I'm just a young kid at this point, uh, Cindy Lauper, who won the first MTV um, video uh, award. Uh, was walking through our offices um, at, at uh, you know, one day. Cindy Lauper at that time was an icon. Uh, a lot of people listening might not remember her or know her. But it was really cool because a bunch of us got to go to the MTV Awards and escort some of the um, some of the celebrities were there to their seats and to and from backstage. And uh, he also produced a movie back then um, called Network, which is now a play on uh, Broadway starring Brian Cranston. Um, it's that famous movie where uh, Peter Finch, yeah, 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 I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. And so there yeah. were a lot of things going on, including the development of the Nabisco Championships and Nabisco Grand Prix of golf. Um, again, this is long before there was ever the FedEx Cup and the FedEx Championship. This was a precursor to this that back in the in the '80s and early '90s that we created. Well, what do you kind of think? that we're living in the real world of network today. I mean, <laughs> I mean, at that point it was kind of like, this will never happen. And yet that's television news today. <laughs> I think is yeah. is the madness and the craziness and, the, and, and, and all that. Um, I, again, you had a lot of talented people that were there, you know, Chip Campbell, one of the, again, another guy that I think has never gotten enough credit, in our business as being an innovator. I think his, his greatest talent was finding other people. <laughs> I mean, like you and others. I mean, he just had a great insight into people. Yeah. You know, I was listening to your podcast the other day. Um, they had with uh, Carl, I think it was your last podcast with Carl Thomas and leadership. And, um, you, know, you talked about the best boss and the worst boss you've ever had. And, you know, I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking that you learn something hopefully from every boss you've ever had. And as you rise in management and rise into leadership positions, you take the best of what you learned and you throw out the worst of what you learned. And that helps to shape the kind of leader that you, uh, that you were. And, you know, again, I owe a lot to Chip and the, thing I learned most from him is to give people an opportunity to 
to do their own thing, give people an opportunity to make mistakes, give them an opportunity to people who, you know, have the confidence to try new things. And, you know, it's a, maybe it's a poor metaphor, but give people enough rope to hang themselves. And, you know, Chip let me try and to do different things. He, you know, he allowed me to teach myself um, and learn along the way. And it helped me create a, a management philosophy, which really ties very closely to the cultures that, you know, I've been involved in developing, which is to surround yourself with people who are confident enough to make mistakes and try new things, but smart enough not to make the same mistake twice. And, you know, in the agencies that I've created, uh, which really at the end of the day is one agency um, that's just had different names and ownership iterations is to, you know, create environments where it's okay to fail, um, but just be smart enough to learn from your lessons and thrive and learn from those mistakes and try different things. And nothing breeds a person's confidence more than, um, you know, being given the opportunity to succeed and, and learning that um, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. Well, well I know you left. Next, <clears throat> you, yeah, I remember you left Omar, and I think you you, you kind of had a cup of coffee at IMG, and you may not remember this, but you you would periodically call me. And you, <laughs> I'll never forget this. You'd call me and you'd go, "Hey, it's Nancy Lopez Day," <laughs> and then you, you'd hang up. And then the next week you'd call me and you'd go. It's Herschel Walker Day. I mean, I, I mean, I never. I always laughed about that because I mean, IMG had so many people they represented, and I think your job yeah. was to try to go try to find income, uh, you know, for these athletes. Talk talk about was that right after Omar? I mean, did you go from Omar? It right? was. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't talk about that much. My IMG days. <laughs> uh, I didn't love it. Yeah. You know, back to knowing what you what you love. Look, IMG is a great company. Uh, and I would never say anything else. They are, you know, the, 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 the company that really created the industry for all intents and purposes, you know, to some degree, along with ProServe and Advantage. But uh, I found it to be very political and I disdain politics in a, in a work environment. Um, and it wasn't right for me. But um, see, again, again, I go back to what you learned in a, in a negative situation. I mean, okay, yeah. one hand you said, I'm not a suit. I don't want to be at IBM. And then you said, I don't want to have an, an agency in an environment that is political. And right. and that led y'all, did you go, did you start ISIS? I use ISIS and people cringe, but it was a different yeah. ISIS. But did y'all start it right after that? Well, um, right after that, uh, Chip hired me again. Uh, and we started an agency called Sports Partners International, um, and uh, it was basically um, owned at that point by Burson Marsteller and Young and Rubikin, and um, myself and Chip and a woman named Jennifer Proud Mearns uh, kind of were leading that company. That lasted about two years, and for a variety of reasons, we spun out and we created this company called International Sports and Entertainment Strategies. In retrospect, unfortunately, the acronym was ISIS. <laughs> uh, so um, I wanted to say we did not uh, sell the trademark or the license to that name <laughs> to anybody or anyone anywhere. 
Um, and um, so we started that agency. There was a guy who had been the deputy commissioner of PGA Tour named Tim Smith, who was a partner there. And after uh, four years at ISIS, um, we sold the company to Clarion Marketing back into the holding company environment that was owned by DMDMB. Uh, but at ISIS, uh, we really did some some you know very interesting and progressive things. Um, you know, we were very involved in creating the first ever Paralympics marketing program um, at that time. Uh, we were heavily vested in the 1996 Atlanta Olympic bid, and we did some really innovative things like bring in um, Wheel of Fortune as a uh, United States Olympic Committee and ACOG sponsor who was doing special Wheel of Fortune episodes uh, themed to the Olympics uh, with athletes coming in and questions and subject matters. Uh, so there was a lot of different things we were doing back in the time and, and as well as, you know, um, landing some of the clients which stay with us today. In fact, um, I have to just say we, we landed IBM. This is all the way back to the Olmeyer days in 1986 we landed IBM. That was the first client that I ever won on a new business pitch. Um, and then in 1993, uh, at ISIS, we landed FedEx. And you kept and those, those too. Yeah, today. yeah, you kept those yeah. forever. You know, a couple of interesting things. You hired Rob Temple, and yeah. and Rob's my dear friend. I mean, you know, one of my best friends in the industry. And, uh, you know, y'all ended up sending him to Australia, and then he, he left you to, to work for the television network uh, around yeah. the Sydney games and really learn the television packaging business that has really served him well. Um, for that, I want to tell you one more funny story. We were we were living in Charleston, and, and uh, we just first got here, and Charlotte went back to teaching first grade, and she was teaching at a private school here. And there was, uh, you know, you teach at a private school, and a lot of times the the mamas will look down on the teachers, you know, like, you know, what you have to work, I don't have to work, that kind of environment. And uh, and so um, this one particular woman was, you know, kind of, she thought a lot of herself. Um, and so we ended up getting invited to the Kentucky Derby, Charlotte and I. And, and so we're at a table on Millionaire's Row with Tim Smith and his wife, Tim Fincham and his wife, Elliot Gould and his wife and Rick and Charlotte. And, and this woman walks by and does a double take, like, oh, my God, what? what? And, and my wife, I never forget, Charlotte just kind of gently waved to her, you know, did the, the little beauty queen wave that was so funny. Uh, but uh, uh, that was my Tim Smith, uh, Tim Fincham story that was, that was a lot of fun. Tim was a brilliant guy. He had um, worked for Hamilton Jordan in the Carter White House. So he had, you know, politics at his core. Um, and he knew his way around different rights holders. You know, he was kind of the brainchild that started the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, which we worked on um, and using a lot of his, you know, political skills, um, uh, you know, during that time. But but anyway, so we, we sold to Clarion. And just to fast forward just a touch, you know, uh, Clarion turned out to be, you know, back into the, 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 the boiling water with a holding company. It turned out to be, you know, extremely political. I like to say that we spent 50 percent of our time on politics, 50 percent of our time on the work and 50 percent of our time trying to find people because there was so much turnover. Um, and uh, 
we did some great work at the time. You know, we were the agency that put the head the, the headphones on coaches on the NFL sidelines for the first time that that Sprint sponsored. Um, you know, um, amongst other things, things we did the Rolling Stones' first ever sponsored uh, tour with with Sprint. Um, you know, there was a lot of really interesting things going on at the time, but uh, myself and, 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 you know, uh, a couple other guys who I'll talk about had enough of that. And so we spun out of Clarion on, on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, Super Bowl weekend, the Saturday of Super Bowl weekend in 1999, uh, we went into the CEO of Clarion and we just said, hey, you know, we've had enough. We're going to leave. If we leave, FedEx and IBM are going to leave. So why don't you let us take those two clients with us? Um, and we worked out a deal. You know, we paid them royalties for a few years. We took the clients and we took, you know, 10 brave souls. And we started Velocity Sports and Entertainment. And again, it was really all about culture because we were miserable working in that environment. And so we set out to create an agency in Velocity, which launched uh, on tax day, April 15th, 1999. Um, that was everything Clarion wasn't. And it was an agency built on culture. In fact, um, you know, Rick, you would think we, we had a business plan, but we didn't have a business plan. We really didn't. But we, you had a we, cultural we had a, plan, yeah. We had a culture plan. Yeah. And and we decided from the outset that culture was going to be our strategic advantage and culture was going to be what helped us bring in the kind of people that we wanted to surround ourselves with. And culture was going to be the thing that helped us retain our employees and retain clients. And, you know, at the core of, of all that was we knew we wanted to work with people that we respected, that we liked and that we trusted and 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 of course, who were smart and had the you know you know had the work ethic that you know we all had, but that's where it started, and um, and I think that's you know very quickly what Velocity, in addition to doing some really interesting work, became known for. Well, I, I one of my favorite quotes is the quote: "Even the Lone Ranger didn't travel alone," and uh, right. and and it, you did have I thought really interesting partners that I thought y'all all complimented each other so well. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, really different skill sets, different compliments, different swim lanes. Talk a little bit about that. Cause I, I, I think that's something that people need to realize. Pick your, well, par- we pick your partners. Well, yeah, we did. Compl- I mean, at, at, at the core is we trusted each other, Rick, you know, and to this day, uh, you know, we, we started to kind of go our separate ways, you know, 21 years later, but at its core, it was always about trust. We could fight with the best of them behind closed doors. But once a decision was made, we kept to it and we moved with it. And while we would fight behind closed doors, we would walk out those doors arm in arm, like a family. You know, if, if, um, I made, if, if there was decisions and was based on a point of view that, you know, I liked, but the other guys didn't, you would never know they didn't like that point of view once we walked out the doors. Uh, but it took some work, you know, we, we, so, so the, the original guys was a guy named Alex Neroff, who's now, um, you know, has re- retired, but was on the board of the U S cycling association, Dave Grant, 
who's still with me at MKTG, and Bob Willamy, who was our CFO, who um, uh, has just retired out to um, Park City, Utah. Uh, and our Bob, the great thing is Bob was our financial guy, our HR guy, our IT guy, everything backroom and operations oriented, Bob handled. So Alex, Dave, and I could work, could, could focus on the work and the clients and the, you know, the PR and the marketing and staying, you know, close to the trends in the business. So, you know, he handled that piece of it. And also, you know, we were very involved in creating the culture. Alex was as anal as I am disorganized. You know, Alex had a list he got through every day. I, I had a list I got through hopefully in a month. You know, we couldn't have been different. <laughs> Alex was strategic as I was creative. And Dave sat somewhere in between. And we both, we all, all four of us were very opinionated, had strong convictions. We once had about, oh, I would say 12 months in, we went to Alex had a house in Nantucket. And we had what we called our steak knife meeting. And we literally sat down in his kitchen for two days with flip charts, telling each other what we what was annoying about, you know, what was annoying us about the other person and, and, you know, what we needed to do differently. And in the middle of this table, we literally had a big butcher block full of steak knives as a metaphor for, you know, we could all take one of those slices out and just, you know, go crazy with it because it, it could get just pretty tough, but it was this open, vulnerable honesty that gave us an understanding of each other. And of course, you know, nobody had any issues with me. So, you know, that was, uh, <laughs> that was very fortunate. No, no. They, uh, you you mean the other three were fighting over the knives for you. Yes, it was like, yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. Who's so going to get to I, you first? Yeah. I learned a lot about myself and I think we were all mature enough to, you know, take the input with the spirit it was intended and, and, you know, it was hard not to take it personally, but, you know, I didn't, they didn't, and um, we got to a much better place. But you can't do that if you don't trust and respect people. Um, and so as we created Velocity, you know, a lot of the things that, um, you know, we've already talked about today were in a, a, a little book called How Do We Do Stuff? You know, we never believed in plaques on the wall and mottos and you know adorning people's you know desks and all that but we did have a uh, a book how we do stuff and in it were a lot of our cultural values so you know there was one line in it that said no politics no politics no politics and in fact um if you were political you did not you did not last long um at, at velocity later later team epic um you know we said there are no clock watchers and by that, we meant don't think you're going to get ahead just because you keep long hours in the office. You know, it's about the work you do and how you produce. We didn't care if you spent three hours a day or 20 hours a day in the office, as long as you got your job done and, and, and you did well. And I, and, and I think, you know, a big key to it, um, Rick, was, um, was about kindness. And that was really one of the things I talked a lot about in our employee orientations was, you know, be kind to your neighbor. You know, we rewarded initiative and we, we, we had a meritocracy so that if you did great work, you got rewarded, but not at the expense of others. And you had to pick up your partners when they needed it, even if it was your peer, somebody you might be competing against for the next position. Um, kindness 
was really important. And we expected everybody to treat each other with kindness and respect. And the interesting thing is some of our culture even got exported into our client work. We had a client, Citizens Bank, who was battling you know, some of the Goliaths that were coming into the mid-Atlantic and New England markets. Um, and they really needed to be seen as the trusted neighborhood bank against the big multinational called Goliaths. We created a program, ironically, because I heard your um, uh, podcast with Bob Lewis um, around random acts of kindness that were celebrated within those communities by Citizens Bank. And we even brought them into uh, uh, the Citizens Bank ballpark Bankers, which came into Citizens Bank Park, which was opened and named by, you know, named by us, but opened obviously by the Phillies. Um, and those ball bank, ballpark bankers, there'd be 20 or so, 30 Citizens Bank employees every night volunteering to go in and just help consumers. And I'll never forget watching one day a little boy, some guy who was drunk, um, you know, sell and pour beer and like, you know, catch up all over this little kid who's bawling his eyes out. And the ballpark banker came up to this boy and his parents and did everything they did to comfort him. Um, got him, you know, a, a little Phillies jersey so he could replace his shirt. And and another boy uh, later that year was so freaked out by the Philly fanatic of all things that a ballpark banker worked with the Phillies to bring that boy kind of back into the clubhouse to meet players. Um, and, you know, it was just that kind of mentality that uh, led us in our brainstorms to suggest that the Citizens Bank took it forward into the marketplace. And what a differential that was in financial services at a time that, you know, people didn't feel that banks were looking after their their singular, you know, best interest. It's interesting you've mentioned trust honesty, kindness, respect. Those, those are pretty good foundations for, for building a culture. Yeah. Well, you know, I believe so. And, you know, as Carl Thomas said in your podcast, you know, those things, it start at the top. Leadership has to set the tone. And as I said, we had a lot of trust uh, in each other and respect for each other. But I also don't want to overrate the leadership you know, piece of it. What we were good at is recruiting like-minded people. We really filtered out the politicians and we filtered out, you know, people who we thought their ambition would overcome, you know, living our values. It doesn't mean ambition is wrong. Ambition is important, but it has to be ambition placed and funneled and harnessed um, the right way. Uh, and one of the ways you get to that point, which is another key to the nucleus of our culture, is about empowering your people. So um, empowerment was a really important piece of how we treated and, you know, and treat our employees. And what does that mean? So one of the things we resisted to this day, you know, now that we're back in the holding company scenario, are timesheets. We found timesheets to be very toxic at Clarion because, you know, put a lot of pressure on people to act and behave. And let's face it, if you've ever been in the, the timesheet environment, everybody's gaining them anyway. But the important thing is we told people, come and go as you please. Okay, just get your work done. Okay, we were big believers uh, in work-life balance. You know, it's interesting. We have we have a saying at Fishbait, we don't check homework for adults. <laughs> right. And it starts right. with, it starts with, we're going to treat you like an adult and not like... Right. A child. 
Well, it's exactly right. And, you know, we always told people work-life balance doesn't mean you work eight-hour days. Work-life balance means we know that we demand, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, many days and weekends and travel. Work-life balance means when you can take an opportunity to take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care of your your friends, um, do it. You know, we, we pushed people out the door when they're, you know, when they were maybe had some downtime um, and nobody ever had to feel guilty or, or worried if they did take that time and when they did take their time. So that's part of empowerment. Part of the empowerment, too, is, you know, being able to speak up, um, being able to provide ideas, especially with these young, this younger generation, you know. A lot of these tenants we're talking about, it doesn't matter if you're Gen Y, Gen X, or Gen Z, they carry through. But, you know, these younger generations, they want to be heard. And we quickly adopted a philosophy that great ideas can come from anywhere. And we were a very flat organization. You know, at one point when it was kind of the fad and everybody in smart money was writing about having companies with no titles, when we started the agency, we didn't want to have titles until we really learned that our clients needed to know, you know, the hierarchy. Yeah, so you know, yeah. it's funny you say but, that. You know, when I when I started Fishbait, you know, I I, I couldn't. Just, I told Sean that I was going to be the managing director, and she laughed and said, "Honey, you don't even manage the house. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, you need a different name." And we came up with the name of the captain. And the first few years, the people that worked for me were the crew, and they finally came to me and go. said. Rick, this just doesn't work in the real world. <laughs> I need to be an account executive. I love, it, <laughs> you know? I love, I love, I love the motivation for that. And so, you know, empowerment is people want to be heard. People want to come and go as they please. Another thing we did is, you know, we did not have layers of um, non-billable, um, you know, kind of administrative people. So. Our people made up our HR committee. Our people made up our CSR, corporate social responsibility people. Our, our people made up the training committee where we brought in speakers and came up with training materials. Our people were what we called XCOM, the external communications or PR and marketing group. Uh, we didn't have any specials for any of those things. So, and we made sure within our kind of billing strategies that our people had time to do that. So a lot of our folks felt like they were involved in running the company, whether you were, you know, very junior or very senior. In fact, when we moved into our current offices in Westport, Connecticut, it's really cool. It has kind of an urban industrial look. It doesn't really meet the suburban <laughs> environment, but it's a cool space. And it was completely gutted when we went in there. And about half the people that work in our Westport agency, that'd be about 70 out of the 140 of our office there, were involved in the design of the interior, the colors we used, the lighting fixtures, the name of the conference rooms, you know, so on and so forth. So half the people come in every day feel like they were part of building this place out. And so we also thought that was a really, you know, truly important part of empowerment. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, what you haven't heard me talk about is the fun piece. You know, a lot of people think about culture as the, you know, the parties and the happy hours and, you know, the barbecues. And, and, and don't get me wrong, that was a big part, is a big part of our culture as well. Um, because the one attribute I haven't talked about yet is levity. You know, we need, always needed, always wanted people that could laugh at themselves, could take a joke, 
and throw a joke back at you and, you know, use levity as a way to, you know, decompress in stressful moments. Oh, dude, we had some wonderful parties. Um, you know, our first office was um, a converted boathouse on the Saugatuck River. And we had a deck and we had the Weber grills out there and the picnic tables and we had a dock connected to the deck. Uh, don't tell Metro North this, our, our railroad, but we had a, a couple of uh, plastic mats for practicing our golf swings. And if you sliced it just enough, it would be sliced right into the train tracks that were near our office. <laughs> um, but there's thousands of golf balls on the bottom of the Saugatuck River. Uh, and the other thing we did, we bought a 20-foot Mako uh, speedboat, uh, which was attached to the dock, which was attached to the deck. And we called it the Velocity and let all the employees use it. We just had to sign up and use it. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of fun things. I also just have to say there was one time we did a uh, this treasure hunt um, just to get people familiar with the area. And, and we had just brought on a lot of new employees, people. And, you know, as you can imagine, like in a lot of sports marketing companies, everybody's super competitive. And, and the last thing once you had crossed off all of the items on the checklist was you had to, somebody on the team had to dive into the Saugatuck River, um, swim out to like a buoy, touch it and come back. Um, I did that for my team and I wasn't even thinking about what I was doing, but and I can't believe I'm talking about this on the podcast, but I didn't want to get my clothes wet. So I stripped down to my underwear in front of all these people. But the really bad part of the story, Rick, is I hadn't really thought about the underwear I was wearing, which I won't describe to you, but to this day, uh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, because you are. This must, this must be a legendary she, moment. At, uh, it's team a I, yes, shit, yes. I catch shit about this <laughs> to this day. Um, and it's just funny, you know. It's just uh, everybody's willing to make themselves vulnerable, whether it's serious or frivolous. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can't have fun in this business, you can't have fun, you know, let's face it. And having fun is, you know, having fun is, is, is a really important quality in, in, in all this. Well, we just got a few more minutes. I want to pivot. Uh, you mentioned the word social responsibility, which was something that your agency always did. Y'all always looked for ways to give back. You were very great about getting your clients to understand that, and 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 now you're working um, with your your late wife Liz's charity, her foundation. She created. Talk, tell tell everybody a little bit about that and, and, and what, uh, the, what the mission for, is. Thanks, yeah, thanks for mentioning it. You know, uh, quick story about Liz, um, who you know lost uh, about eighteen months ago now. Um, you know. The four of us, when we started Velocity, could not decide on a name. One day, we're sitting in one of the partners' kitchen, and we are talking about nicknames. We couldn't figure it out. I went home that night, and I was at the kitchen table there, and Liz says, why don't you call it Velocity? But she had a lot of reasons for it. I won't bore you all with it. So I went back the next day, and I said Velocity, and everybody is arguing about it. Uh, well, it turns out that Alex's wife heard the name, came back an hour later with a Carvel's ice cream cake on it with Velocity written on it. And um, she looked at it. She goes, this is your name, boys. So, 
between the, Liz the, and the, the wives wife. knew. That's right. The yeah. wives knew, and it was a great name. Uh, we rebranded it for you know ten years later as Epic Team Epic. But um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So Liz was a journalist. In fact, I met her. Um, she was a sports business journalist for the you know gray hairs who are listening. She wrote for um, you know the sports business for um, uh, Sports Inc. She was the sports marketing and television writing writer for the National, and that's how I met her. Uh, trying to get her, frankly, to write about our agency, and it obviously led to a twenty-three-year uh, marriage. And uh, but later, she became a owner of a music store that we bought, and we built out a store. And music really was her passion. Uh, we sold, still do, instruments, music lessons, really catering to the you know, middle school, elementary school market. And um, Liz's passion, you know, to the day she died was really around music education. And uh, she did a lot of lobbying in Washington with the National Association of Music Merchants, where she sat on the board. And, you know, with her illness, it was two and a half years from uh, diagnosis to when she died. We had a lot of time to think about her legacy, which was a real blessing. And so, you know, after she passed, uh, we created the Liz Reisman Foundation for School Music Education that sits under the National Association of Music Merchants um, uh, Charity Foundation. And it's, it's designed to raise funds to help, you know, students who, and, you know, young people who, um, you know, don't get the benefit of music education, either because they're impoverished neighborhoods or underprivileged neighborhoods or at-risk school systems. And our first couple of grants have gone to some wonderful organizations. Um, and, you know, it's more meaningful than ever before um, because we think we can take the next step uh, to not only help with music education, but also to help with some of the diversity that is you know, being cried out for by the public today. Um, and, you know, Liz was always driven by research and data that demonstrated that, you know, a, a child who has immersed themselves in music is a child that's going to be more successful in life. And it's so sad that so many of these young kids don't, don't have that opportunity for that kind of enrichment. Um, so I'm also glad now to be able to kind of broaden this scope into kind of meeting some of the challenges of diversity. You know, we did talk about that in culture and I, I just going to take 30 seconds with this, Rick. Um, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, uh, this long lineage of Olmeyer and sports partners and ISIS and Clary on Velocity, Epic now and KTG at a time where, I wish I could be part of the solution of helping to diversify, you know, an agency that isn't diverse enough. And I take some of the, the, the blame for that. And, um, you know, I want to do my part moving forward um, to help with what I think is a, a, a much uh, justified crying out for, you know, social and, 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 and racial equality. Well, I think music can be one of those things that that, that does that. Um, one of my favorite quotes is a Tennessee Williams quote that says, I believe in memory, everything happens to music. 
And, mm-hmm. and, and I think about the soundtracks of our lives and I think about how the commonality of music and the diversity of music and the diversity of, of, of musicians. Um, and so I think you're in a, you're in a really good place um, to, to fulfill that. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think only a fool doesn't have any regrets, but the key is to take the regrets and say, all right, I'm still here. What can what can I do next? And it sounds like you've got a you've got a plan to do that, and that's exciting. Well, you know, we're imperfect human beings, and you know, I think it's an important lesson. Again, it goes back to culture that we all have to, you know, grapple with and and you know, think about. And uh, I am determined to use music in, you know, whatever ways I can to help school children, you know, prosper. Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the things I'm going to be moving on to, and I, I've talked to some wonderful people just in the last, you know, few weeks about how they want to get behind this kind of initiative, because, you know, music is in everybody's soul. Music is in everybody's spirit. Music, you know, brings us back to better times and, you know, music um, helps to kind of enrich us. And in order to, um, you know, be able to do something of significance, I hope to tap into, you know, the contacts I have. Um, You know, for instance, one of the things I was speaking to somebody who runs music festivals about is bringing kids... um, sections and some of the festivals do this into the music festival that can celebrate, you know, uh, children's music, celebrate the diversity of music. Um, and, uh, and I think that has a promise, you know, I'll just, I'll just cap it off by saying it's not a, a quote from a music person, but one of my favorite quotes I've heard recently is by a woman named Katrina Adams. And she's the vice president of the International Tennis Federation and chair of gender equality in tennis committee in the tennis community and um, racial equality in the tennis community, and uh, she said, "quote Don't cheer for me on the court if you aren't going to cheer for me off the court." Um, and I think it's a very provocative thought um, and something that I think can help guide. Um, you know, the foundation. And I know Liz, Liz would embrace that wholeheartedly. Um, and I want to thank you for bringing her up because she was an awesome woman and all the things I did, uh, I couldn't have done without her. And I know we're running short of time. I, I'll tell you one, just one other quick story if I can. Sure. Um, I'll make it quick. Thank you. So, uh, one of the times we won sports business journals agency of the year, um, I was shocked to be on. I went up and, you know, at the, at the Marriott Marquis in the city, there's, I don't know, a thousand people or whatever in the room to give, a, you know, the 30 second acceptance speech they let you give. Um, and I found myself not thanking our clients. I didn't thank our people. Uh, I started thinking about Liz and my kids and I thanked every, all the families, all the, the significant others and all the kids who made so many sacrifices while all of us at uh, Team Epic at the time couldn't go out and work hard and make the business better, make the business more vibrant. Um, 
And, you know, I, I got so many, probably so, so many nice comments about thinking about how our family supported it. And, um, you know, I never could have done any of this without Liz, I guess, is, is my message. Well, it's a great message. It's a great one to leave us with. You know, you used a term, you, you said you wanted to be significant. And, and Mike, that's, that's the word for your career. I mean, you've been significant. And, and here's the good news. You ain't done yet. So many thanks for being with us today from the bridge. Well, thanks, Rick. You're always an inspiration, and I uh, appreciate you so much. All right. Talk soon, buddy. See you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. It's time for another point of view from the soapbox. Um, our current political culture is totally broken, and it affects us all. As of today, we still don't have any resolution about extending the PPP program, about extending benefits and rights. I understand both sides. I mean, a bunch of people in the restaurant industry have come out and said, look, if you give everybody $600 a week, nobody's going to come back to work. Um, So I do understand that. I also understand the fact we can't just run up the debt. But at the same time, we can't let people be evicted from their homes and we can't let people starve. I've mentioned before, our elected officials seem to put party and politics ahead of that other P word, people. I started my career as a coach. As a coach, you have to be the coach for all of the people on your team. You can't fail any of them. There's no bell curve. Your French teacher could fail you, but not your coach. I think it's the same for presidents and governors and mayors. If you're the president, you're the head coach of the country. If you're the governor, you're the head coach of the state. If you're the mayor, you're the head coach of your city. And as the head coach, you have to serve all of the people, not just people who look like you, think like you, vote like you, and worship like you. I have to laugh when one elective official wins an election by 1%, and says that he or she has a mandate. No, the math says that almost half voted against you, and you need to serve them just like those who voted for you. Hey, maybe coaches should run for office. Unfortunately, they seem to have a lot of free time these days. And that's my view from the soapbox. Let's get back on the road with Rick. Not far from where our guest angler Mike Reichman lives is one of my very favorite pizza joints. It's the original Pepe's Pizza in New Haven, Connecticut. Pepe's is over 95 years old, started by an Italian immigrant named Frank Pepe. They serve classic Neapolitan-style pizza. Two are classics, tomato with mozzarella, and tomato with Pecorino Romano cheese, and both of these are outstanding, but when you go there, you want something very special. And their special pizza there is the white clam pizza. Fresh clams, Pecorino Romano cheese, garlic, oregano, and olive oil. Pepe's now has locations throughout Connecticut, plus a couple of places in New York, place in Rhode Island, a couple places in Massachusetts. But I'm partial to the original. 
the White Clam Pizza, Pepe's Pizza in New Haven, Connecticut, on the road with Rick. Our cruise is over for today. Thanks for being with us. And to my special guest, Mike Reichman, I hope you'll join us again next week from the bridge. Mm-hmm.